Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me today with my guest, Mark Slavkin. Mark serves on two nonprofit boards. One is called Create CA, and the other is called Communities in Schools Los Angeles. And I just have to do this. I have to, t- I have to say this now. Next month, in April, I will be celebrating my eighth year as the host of the blog Born to Talk radio show. Three of those years were spent in the LA Talk Live studios, and the following years now I've been on Blog Talk Radio. But I want you to know that um, Mark has joined me. This Mark is Mark is my long-lasting friend. This is our fourth time together. The first three years was in the studio, and now he's joining me on Blog Talk Radio. I just, so thank you so much, Mark, and welcome to this broadcast. Thank you. Happy to be here, and I will try to live up to your very kind introduction. Well, I don't think you'll have to work too hard. You're authentic. You know, if if you really aren't the real deal, it's going to come through, and people recognize that. So I don't think it will be hard for you to just be Mark, which is who I know. So for those people that haven't listened to our other shows together and don't perhaps know anything about you, I thought you could just spend a few moments telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm happy to be here. So thank you for having me back, Marcia. Um, You're welcome. I guess in a nutshell, I'm a native of L.A., went to public schools here in L.A., uh, was brought up in a very political family that we can talk about that inspired me to get involved in, in government, which was my kind of early career focus. And then I transitioned in a very unplanned way <laughs> into the nonprofit world and the world of arts and culture organizations. And I had just many years of joyful opportunities that I'm so grateful for. And then just about a year ago, retired from the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Beverly Hills, uh, which is an amazing experience. So I can focus now as son, husband, father, grandfather. um, And as you mentioned, I'm very involved with two two nonprofits that we can talk about. Yes. You know, where you retired from at the Wallace Annenberg Performing Arts Center that was something that we talked about in the studio. And what my hand, honestly, my hand just goes over my heart because that was so remarkable. What you guys did, you and Elaine Hall, and what you did there was so amazing. I will never forget it. We've had a lot of terrific experiences together, Mark. And I I'm, I look forward to having you share you know, more about yourself 
and education and everything that you just mentioned. So, and I know you love being a grandpa. It's clear. It's written all over your face. Oh I my gosh. It's my favorite job description. Um, oh, I bet. And speaking of the program that you mentioned, Marcia, the wall is called the Miracle Project, um, founded by Elaine Paul, still very much exists. And as a matter of fact, a young man who is out of college, so he's a little older, but someone who, who has autism and was active with Miracle Project is now on American Idol, uh, made <gasps> to the Hollywood crowd. His name is Aiden Boyer. Um, so the joy of that I have continues to this very day as I see so many of the young people uh, with autism, but also with enormous talent, um, continue to share their talents, whether it's TV or American Idol, whatever, is a great, such a great feeling. Oh my gosh, Mark, I watched that show. I didn't make the connection, but just one, one more sidebar, Kobe Bird. When I saw him perform at the Miracle Project, and then he also got an acting role on a TV show on The Good Doctor, not to mention how well he sings. I mean, we could just talk forever about how we how we go cross paths. But thank you for mentioning that that about Aiden because I do watch that show, and um, yeah. I will definitely pay attention. But you mentioned, as I am that you are a public educated person. So what was your own experience in public age education like as a child? I had such a great experience, and, and when I share it, it makes me, I don't want to sound really, really old, um, but the glory days of public education in California were before 1978. That was a, a watershed moment when something called Proposition 13 was enacted. We don't need to get into all those details, but I right. benefited from local public schools in our neighborhood that I could walk to. This is before there were magnet schools or charter schools or any of those things. There were just mm-hmm. quality neighborhood public schools. And I can't think of a teacher that I had truly that wasn't fantastic, um, mm-hmm. which today seems a rarity that, you know, they're good teachers and not so good teachers. Um, great teachers who inspired me, schools that had great resources, um, a great group of friends where we all went to those same schools together and are right. still on an event next week with several of my junior high alumni friends from Palms Junior High. Um, so I feel very blessed, very fortunate to have grown up at that time and, and also live in an area, frankly. We lived in the Chevy Hills Rancho Park area um, that was fortunate to have wonderful local schools. I don't know that all schools obviously are not the same, but um, I I reflect on that because there's a lot of bashing that goes on and what's wrong with public schools is if they can't be better, they can't change. And and it helps me to reflect that they can be better. I experienced it. I lived it. Um, And if it was good enough for me, then our today deserve the, the same I would agree, Mark, and our experiences are similar. Um, I know you went on to go to USC Fight On. Um, I didn't. After I graduated from Westchester High School, um, I got married. I started my family, and I was that PTA lady. You and I, we have a very, very long history together, and um, I don't even know if there are. I think there's more like PTOs today than there are actually PTAs. But 
you 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 mentioned something a little earlier about politics, and I'd like to know um, how did you get interested in politics? Yeah, I think it is in my DNA, mm-hmm. literally. Um, I was named after my late uncle, whose name was Mark Ferber, uh, who studied politics at UCLA, went on to get political science, and then spent his career both in government, in politics, and in university leadership roles. Um, but it was literally the, not just the dinnertime conversation about what was happening, because I think more and more all families need to confront what's happening in politics. Um, but he was involved personally. So the story, mm-hmm. the relationship he had, the kind of inside baseball that he knew, I think just inspired me. My mom is his younger sister. It inspired her to be very involved in politics and, and campaigns when I was mm-hmm. little. There's, there's an urban myth that the first phone number I knew when I was three years old was the campaign headquarters for <laughs> Ed Ellis who was running for city council at that time in 1965. I don't know that it's true. It's kind of a cute, cute story. I don't know that <laughs> real no phone numbers. But um, from the youngest age, it was inspiring to me. And I became like a political junkie at a young age. And I'll just tell this story. 1972, presidential election, um, George McGovern is challenging Richard Nixon. And we had like a little student mock election at my school, Overland Elementary School. And McGovern mm-hmm. won like 99 to 1, like total landslide. So I came home from school that day just completely confident that McGovern would win because he carried Overland School students by 99 to 1. And I remember <laughs> so heartbroken when the very early returns came in that like it was such a landslide. And I think Nixon won every state except Massachusetts. Um, and, and I remember taking that so hard as like an 11 year old. So it was it was a passion of mine before obviously I got involved. But it, I grew up with it, and it was something that I wanted to um, mm-hmm. to aspire to as I thought about what I would be when I when I grew up. Sure. So what led you to run for the school board? things. I mean, I would often be asked, like, why would a normal person like you want to do that? And so I'm <laughs> laughing. Oh, um, God. But it was, both, I mean, it was, it was an important, um, it's an important government position, an important public office that, that truly matters, obviously. So that was definitely calling me to it. But by that time, our son, our oldest son, um, was about two years old. And we're looking Mm -hmm. ahead to where would he go to public school, you know, when he would be in kindergarten. And I knew that what we took for granted in my childhood was just you'd walk to the local neighborhood school. That was the end of that. When Max was just two, like at the birthday parties with the other little kids, so much anxiety parents had about can we go to public school at all? Is this a good school or a bad school? How can we somehow get out of our school and into this magnet school? And that struck me. I mean, parents should have choices. That's not the point. But the anxiety part of it saddened me and that mm-hmm. public schools could not be taken for granted. And there was a sense that there just weren't enough, you know, great opportunities. So wearing that hat as a young parent was a definite motivator as well sure. as just growing up with a commitment to public service. So 
all those things converged when I decided to run against an incumbent uh, who had been there a while and was not like a horrible person by any means. So a lot of people no. just patted me on, on the head like, that's cute that you're going to run, but you understand, <laughs> well-established, he's much older, you are just a young kid, um, and we can spare all the details, but thanks yes. to you, a lot um, I won that election, barely, but we won and, and served mm-hmm. – eight years on the on the L.A. school board. Gosh. Well, just briefly, because I know I want to get into your nonprofit work, but I know what was going on in my life with my children in school during those days. What were the critical issues on the school board during your tenure? Although I think I probably know some of those answers. Yeah, a number of things. A big issue and probably my own priority was this issue of, local control in this massive L.A. school district and trying to move authority for kids and parents and teachers and administrators to really have a larger voice at the community mm-hmm. level. Um, that was called school-based management. It was called yep. learn. It charter schools, lots of different flavors. But that value of empowering people locally was a major issue of the time and, and a big um, personal priority uh, for me. The other major issue was just overcrowding um, in that L.A. at that time, over 700,000 students in the school district, not enough schools to serve them all, kids getting up at 4 in the morning to take the bus across town because their home school was, was literally full, schools moving to what was called a multi-track year-round calendar where the school yeah. was open literally 12 months and kids rotated in and out to allow more kids to fit. Um, and so that was just a major day-to-day issue and imperative that ultimately sparked um, my colleagues and I to pass the first bond measure in a long, long time. And then sub- subsequently, several others have been passed. So lots of new schools were, were built. The other mm-hmm. two big things that stand out were the Northridge earthquake in 1984 yep. that damaged schools like every other building and became a big issue of rebuilding um, and the riots that took place after the beating of Rodney King in 1992. That yep. was a watershed moment in the history of L.A., and schools were affected with the concerns about safety and rioting, but also just making our kids aware of all that. You know, why is our city on fire? Why are the National Guard troops in the parking lot? Why would people burn down these stores? That became just such an important issue and, and challenge. Um, so all those things and many other, you know, happy moments as well. But, there were. Uh, there were tons of happy moments. But you have really identified, I can think of others, we could spend the entire hour talking about what went on in those years because my kids, you know, and my kids graduated from Westchester High just like I did. One was in 92 and one was in 95. And, yeah. um you know, I have a lot of experience in the public school system. But what led you to shift from the nonprofit sector and work at the Getty? Great question and not an obvious answer. Um, okay. After eight years on the school board, I mean, that was a very rewarding experience in spite of all the challenges. I felt privileged to be there. Every day I woke up saying, this is an important job, which, you know, we can't all say about every job, but it was very meaningful. The stakes were high, and I was, you know, very fortunate to have that 
that opportunity. But eight years on the board is kind of like a hundred years in human terms. It's, uh, it's <laughs> oh, very Mark. much seven days a week. It very much weighs on you night and day. Even if I was at the supermarket with my kids, somebody would come up to me about something going on. Um, so I was ready to explore other options, but I had no idea really what I wanted to do because I had been so in government that it was hard for me to imagine something else. And mm-hmm. a woman that you may know through, through Learn, Mary Chambers, who is still a good friend of mine, um, mm-hmm. said, like, what about the Getty? And I just looked at her like, what are you possibly talking about? Because the <laughs> Getty is like one of the most artsy-fartsy organizations probably in the world. <laughs> and I have no legitimate credentials whatsoever in Renaissance paintings or Greek antiquities or any of that. And she said, well, you know, they're building the Getty Center, and they want to be more connected in L.A., and they could use somebody like you to help connect them to L.A. Why don't you go meet with the the woman who headed up the education program? So I, almost as a favor to Mary, I had breakfast with Lonnie Duke, and still no light bulb went off in my mind. But, like, well, I'll at least talk to this woman. And a very long story short, I ended up there at the Getty uh, before we opened and after the opening, And it was just a fantastic, magical experience. And it was like graduate school for me in the arts. They Mm -hmm. paid for me to go around the country and interview people and visit programs and read key publications, ask the author about stuff. I mean, at the time, it felt kind of over the top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? But looking back, like, oh, my, you know, what a rare opportunity. And because. Getty invested in me, and because I learned a lot, I then was perceived as somehow knowing a little bit about arts education. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I would always smile, like, well, little do they know. Like, you know, he must be an expert <laughs> at, at the Getty, which I did, but um, definitely a latecomer to, to being smart about the arts and arts education. But it was that Getty experience that was really serendipitous because of my friend Mary then changed the course of my career and moved me to this new world of arts and culture. And, and I'll be forever be grateful to Mary and forever be grateful to the Getty for kind of taking a gamble on somebody who was very much not above the type that was typical staff at, at, the, at the Getty. Right. That is, it's interesting. So would you say that that's really how you sort of developed your passion for arts education? Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, truth be told, I grew up loving the arts in school and having all these opportunities that we just took for granted at the time. Um, visual art classes, choir at Overland Avenue, square dance, oh, yes. which I didn't really love, but I'm sure was good for me at some level. <laughs> but those things all seemed normal. You know, they weren't magnet schools or some special one-time thing. They were mm-hmm. baked into what were just schools. And I later in middle school and high school was able to take up clarinet and play in band and play in the marching band and have these mm-hmm. great experiences. But when I was on the school board, there were all these other issues that we just talked about. And the arts was not my focus by any means. It wasn't even really on, on the agenda. And it was the Getty and it was all the, sort of investment and learning that I had access to 
that made me much smarter and more passionate about it. I had a deeper understanding of why the arts matter, why they could be transformative for schools and, and for kids. I was much more well-versed in the, in the literature and the research and model programs. Um, and the more I learned about it, the more that drew me in as part of my passion for public education, but this new sort of focus area that the arts get to a lot of other things that I care about, like joy, um, to make schools meaningful for, for kids. Well, I think this is a perfect transition to what it is you're doing today. And I would like to spend the rest of this program talking about these two remarkable programs that you are involved in as as a board member in a nonprofit. And the first one I would like to talk to you about is one that's called Create CA. And I'm going to spell that for those of you that might want to look this up while we're speaking. It's, so it's C-R-E-A-T-E-C-A dot org. And I love what it says underneath your tagline, Cultivating Creative Schools in California. And it's a beautiful website, Mark. I mean, it really is. Um, and there's some statistics and things that are written on this website that it's like, really? So I thought, what, so what led you to join this particular board, Create CA? Good question. Um, after the Getty, I worked at the Music Center, the Performing Arts Center of L.A. County in downtown L.A., which is another incredible opportunity. Yes. And I led education programs at the Music Center, had a great team of people, um, staff that I worked with who did amazing work. And a couple of my colleagues were involved in an organization which at the time was called the California Alliance for Arts Education. And they knew that I had been on the school board, and and before that I worked in the legislature in Sacramento. And they knew that I, you know, had a background in policy and advocacy and school reform. So they would come to me to share what was going on or sometimes to ask for, for my advice. Um, which I was happy to to give. And so I was sort of a fan of the organization without being directly involved. And then at some point I was invited to to join the board. And then many years later we merged with another project that we had launched that was called Create California. So we kind of merged the name. Create California is much catchier and easier to say than the Mm -hmm. California Alliance for Arts Education. Um, Uh So my, but my involvement probably goes back 20 years and, and maybe 15 on the, on the board. And for me, what continues to drive me is the policy and the advocacy work that we do at the state level, which is to ensure that all California schools, school districts, students have access to quality arts education. And that involves funding, it involves graduation requirements, it involves testing policies, things that I come to know a lot about having been on a school board. And my kind of public policy government systems change mind is drawn to working at, at that level in addition to the work that I've done at the one kid at a time level. And you mentioned like Miracle Project, some individual students that, that we helped um, give amazing opportunity. And so I realized at some point that the world needs both, right? At mm-hmm. the ground level, one kid at a time, we need quality program support 
service, mentor, all of that. But one kid at a time will never solve the whole problem because California is like a big country, actually. <laughs> yes, it is. For doing it one kid at a time or one school at a time, it'll take like 50,000 years. So <laughs> while we're doing the oh, grassroots classroom-level work, we also need to work kind of top-down at the state level. So my mind kind of toggles back and forth between that bottom-up and top-down, and mm-hmm. the work we do at Create definitely speaks to my kind of systems change thinking. Sure. Well, what's your current focus currently? What, what are you focusing on? I'm looking at your website. I see all kinds of fabulous things like um, CalArts and Cultural Summit and Advocacy Day coming up next month. What, tell me, tell, for those people that are unfamiliar, what is, what is the focus right now for Create CA? But great question, and I think the website is a great resource and much more detailed than, than I can be. But our right. project is just an, a godsend of a problem, like the best world-class problem you could have. Last November, California voters statewide passed a ballot measure called Proposition 28 that Austin Butner was really the force behind it, and he had been mm-hmm. superintendent in the L.A. school district long after I was there, but coincidentally, he led LAUSD. And he was passionate about arts education and helped get this measure on the ballot, help it pass, um, Prop 28. It will provide almost $1 billion, with a B, $1 billion of new money for arts education every year starting in the coming school year that begins this coming July. Oh, wow. And so it, it is remarkable, and we have colleagues around the country that are, you know, intrigued. How the heck did you do that? What advice would you give us? And that ballot measure is sort of its own story. But now the challenge is how do we ensure that that money is spent wisely? And the devil is in the details, and because it's a big state, it involves rules and regulations, it involves the California Department of Education, it involves school boards, it involves principals and teachers and parents, it involves recruiting people to be art teachers. We're going to need about 15,000 new art teachers, like music, dance, theater, visual arts, to fill these new jobs created by this proposition. And those teachers don't exist as we speak today because there haven't been that many jobs. Why would you decide to be a dance teacher if there are only three openings in California? I'm exaggerating, but there are few. Now there'd be 15,000. So how I wonder, hey, Mark. I wonder if my brother would consider coming out of retirement. Probably not. But he, he was the art teacher for decades at Orville Wright. Isn't that interesting? Well, it, it is a great idea. Um, and we're going to need, I mean, you're partly joking, but we're going to need to be creative about it. Um, yes. Because sometimes school rules and regulations become so rigid that they get in the way. So, how could we help people who have distinguished careers in the art transition and become teachers in school without, like, you know what, um, Debbie Allen or Mikhail Baryshnikov or right. Marcellus, you've got to go back to school, earn your teaching degree, get all these units. Like, really? Um, can we fast-track people who have the arts background? Obviously, there are right. things you need to be an effective teacher. I don't want to belittle that. But right. we've just got to open it up because – the money is coming, 
and the kids need it now. And I don't want to wait years and years and years and years and have that money just be unspent because mm-hmm. we couldn't find enough teachers. So Create California, I would say 90% of our days and hours are spent on those issues. How do we help Prop 28 be implemented thoughtfully, quickly, effectively, so that kids can benefit as soon as possible and we don't lose another generation of kids who grow up with very little access. It's real interesting what you said because my father was very artistic. It wasn't the work that he did. But I remember when when Larry was at um, Westchester High School, his art teacher changed his life. And those are the kinds of things that you're referring to. I don't know that Larry had any direction as to what he wanted to study or even go to college. He was the first one in the family to go to college, and he studied art. And he's still very artistic to this day. But it's sad when I'm looking right now at your website that 89% of the California schools don't provide this kind of this kind of education and that that's wrong not everybody's going to go to college and become a doctor there's nothing wrong with being really good with clay or being really good with as a dancer or gosh with the technology and media arts today come on now there's all kinds of opportunities in visual arts and theater you know, my daughter was a theater major she and she got her theater love the love of theater going to westchester high school and performing yep. there so you know i i just I, i'm a proponent of this and is it true that the arts are the first to get cut during a budget crisis well, I, I think yes and no. I think too often we fall into this kind of victim language about arts education. The fact okay. is that it is very strong, enduring American value. It is not brand new. It is not unique to L.A. or California. Around the country, people understand that a well-rounded education includes the arts, and other states fund their schools at higher levels and have been able to afford more arts education than California. But when given the opportunity, I find teachers, principals, school board members, superintendents, value the arts, get it. They're really not heads in the sand. You know, they don't understand. They've got very tough jobs, inadequate resources, lots of pressure on them. And, but it's not a matter of belief. It's often a matter of being overwhelmed with other issues or not having adequate resources, or in my case, I mean, right now I think, well, Mark's a pretty passionate advocate for the arts education, but I was also Mark Slavkin when I was on the school board, and that was not my record, so somebody could have pointed to me then and said, he doesn't get it, he doesn't care, when in fact, maybe my eyes hadn't been opened, and I really didn't get it at a deep enough, a deep enough level. So the good mm-hmm. thing now in California is that argument is a little bit passe, because now the issue is how do we spend this billion dollars? So it's not about cuts. It's about adding, adding in an intelligent way and adding in an equitable way because all these school districts now are competing to hire art teachers. And you're going to okay. see in online job listings and stuff wanted in San Diego 
music teachers, wanted in Fresno, dance and theater teachers, wanted in Bakersfield, visual art teachers. And if given the choice between affluent suburban communities with glorious facilities or really tough struggling schools and very tough neighborhoods in the inner city, who do you think will get the teachers first? Who do you right. think will be the top right. choice of for the teachers? So that's what I worry about, is that the kids who are in need, who could really benefit the most and have their lives transform, like you mentioned your brother, that they're going to have to wait the longest. And that's not okay with me. So that, again, gets to how do we give priority to them and how do we help them get the teachers and artists into those schools. Um, So it's going to happen. It's a question of how quickly we can do it. But finally, money's not the, the excuse, you know, like, sure. oh, you don't understand. We don't have any money. They just cut our budget. Well, you do have money, and this money can only be used for arts education. So let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about creativity and how to move us forward and not look back or lament what we don't have. But let's 28 really live up to the promise. And voters overwhelmingly statewide passed it with like 64%. The highest hmm. ballot measure on that November ballot, and you know, dealing with all the different subjects, the arts education ballot got the most support. So that's interesting, Mark. California voters care about it. I'm I'm looking before we move over to um, um, communities um, in schools. I, I wanted to. I'm, I'm looking at your website, and I find this really interesting where it talks about social emotional learning sel scientific research shows that arts education impacts both academic success as well as emotional well-being i wonder how many people know that well yeah i mean it i have mixed feelings about the term social emotional learning okay schools are so good Schools are good at converting really good ideas into acronyms, and that's just <laughs> the way uh-huh. it is. That I, I have to get used to that. But social-emotional learning, which is long overdue, is the idea that kids are not little machines that you just feed in data and instruction. Kids come to school, trauma, facing psychological challenges, facing difficult issues often in their family that they just left at home, that morning, they're dealing with parents who are divorced. They're dealing with domestic violence around them. They may know of people who are dealing with drug addiction. They might have a sibling who got beat up by a gang the day before, and now they're worried about it. So young people with all these things swirling around in their mind, turns out, are not always ready to focus on algebra or you yes. grandparents. So we need to treat them as human beings, create space where they can begin to share, you know, not in a therapy way, but feel safe talking about their frustrations, talking about their fears, being supported that school is a place where they're going to be given concern and love and support and not always just scolded or chastised. And we're going to help kids learn to regulate their behavior as they get older that because you're frustrated doesn't give you license to punch the kids sitting next to you, yeah. you know, in class, right. but there's a better way and, and so on. So making schools a more humane environment that's more attuned to where kids are, that's what social-emotional learning, in, in a nutshell, that's sort of the, the big idea. 
And where the arts come in is this idea that the arts, when done right, I would say, because you can also do it poorly and just botch this up. But you can give kids an opportunity in, let's say, in a visual art class to say, think about your mood this morning. And I want you to use those paints on the table to create, you know, a drawing or color painting or whatever that just gets to the mood that you have this morning. For Mm -hmm. some kids, they don't want to talk about being angry or they don't want to talk about being scared, but they'll put that in paint and they don't even know it, but they'll express that because the paint feels wide open and creative. There's not a right answer. They're not going to get eyes for being wrong. That mm-hmm. art can be a way to start to express things that they're grappling with. Or in theater, they're playing a character very different than themselves that allows them to be angry or to yell at somebody that otherwise they wouldn't do, but that's in the play. So it's creating what we call a safe space where I can express emotions and not worry about getting in trouble or getting teased. That I, people aren't yeah. going to laugh when I tell you that I'm worried about this or, or that. So I've seen time and again arts programs, again, when done right, because you can also have a bossy, mean arts teacher who always yells at kids, right? There's, there's nothing magic about yeah. the word art suddenly makes it all happen. But I think we can find lots of good opportunity in the arts where kids feel like I found a community. I found a place mm-hmm. where I feel valued. I found peers who share my passion, who don't mock me. Um, and now I have a reason to be in school. And, and I have a teacher maybe I feel comfortable after class confiding in because he or she has built a special trust with me. So the arts are not a magic solution, but I think can be a place of healing and a place of support that kids today need it. I mean, I think they've always had these needs, but we're seeing coming out of the pandemic, kids just having more trauma in their lives, all that, you know, that all of us have lived through, frankly, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kids have had to deal with lots of trauma in their lives and, and have been out of school where you learn how to get along with others, how to support your peers. So even if they're in high school and if they've been out of school for a year or more, finally back together, we find that they have more emotional needs than, than before. And so social emotional learning, every educator in California and probably nationally playing with how do we make that concept true? It's not just a, a reality, or, mm-hmm. you know, a lesson that you just do a one-off. How do I change culture in my classroom where all the kids feel safe? That takes time. It takes, you know, fits and starts, trial and error all of that, but there's now finally a recognition that we've got to move in that direction. Well, and, you know, and they can't use budget as the reason why they can't, which is what is so beautiful. When when we talk about the other organization that you've dedicated yourself to, that's called Communities in Schools Los Angeles. And I would like to know more about that. And I guess my very first question, I think I know the answer, but you can clarify this for me when is communities in schools los angeles um and that that is a cis los angeles.org are there communities in schools across this country yes great question okay uh, okay there is a great, great book called the last dropout by bill milliken um m-i-l-l-i-k-e-n i believe Bill Milliken is still alive. He's the founder of Communities in Schools. He grew up in Pittsburgh in a, you know, middle-class 
background, but a family that had lots of conflict and, um, I don't know, domestic violence, but a very unhappy environment at home. And he had learning disabilities. He struggled in school. He ultimately stopped going to high school and hung out in this pool hall, pool hall, but (laughs) this pool hall in Pittsburgh. You know, during the day, he was supposed to be in school. He was hanging around with other young adults who were older in this pool hall where he could get in trouble. And one day a guy came in and befriended him and started to listen to him and and was a turning point in his life. And Mm. the secret sauce of that was a trusting relationship with an adult who wasn't a parent, who wasn't in charge of you in any sense, like at school, teachers in charge of you or principal or something. A caring adult made the, the difference. And so he came up with the tagline, relationships, not programs. And that what is needed, well, the book gets into how all this happened. And ultimately, he launched communities and schools starting in Atlanta. Jimmy Carter was elected president and saw this as a model, invested federal money. It grew to more and more and more states. And they're called affiliates now. So we have like our head office is in San Antonio today. Hmm. But there are cities and counties and states around the country that are affiliates with communities and schools. But the big idea today is the same. How do we bring into schools caring adults to build relationships of trust with the kids who are struggling the most, not wait for them to drop out, not wait for them to get to a pool hall, but meet them in school where we know they're having a tough time. The schools help identify the kids. They're absent a lot. They're behind in their grades. They're truant. They have behavioral issues. The community and school steps in and says, we're going to build a one-on-one trusting relationship with each of those kids, and we're going to get to those kids, families, whatever they need. Because what we learn is he can't do well in school because he needs eyeglasses, and nobody ever identified that, and we're going to buy him eyeglasses. Or the family's about to be evicted because they can't afford the rent, and we're going to give them some support to pay the rent and keep them from being evicted. Or they need you know, mental health support or counseling, but the treatment that was recommended is like 12 bus rides from their house, you know, and can only see them in the afternoon, and the mom has no way to get the kid there. So we Mm -hmm. will step in and let's bring a counselor into the school or let's provide transportation to get you there. So it's just kid by kid, giving them the support, showing somebody cares who's not in charge of them, just a caring adult, building trust, and it makes a huge difference. And so that's what community schools is. And here in L.A., we're working in 15 schools within L.A. Unified. How many, Mark, did you say 15? 15, five, yeah. Okay. Um, with it, in each of those schools who are identified as really being the most, I mean, all kids have needs, but who's struggling the most? And let's give them one-on-one support. Let's give them group peer support. Let's bring in mentors. Let's bring in, you know, mental health resources. Let's get them meals to the families during the pandemic when they didn't have access. Um, So it is this just what it says, bringing community resources into schools to help support the kids who are most in need. And we, we do that in partnership with schools. It's very much a collaborative team effort. We're not, like, there to criticize the school or you know, attack right. the school, but they've got their job to do, which is education, and mm-hmm. 
for all the great people in the school districts, they don't have enough to give the one-on-one support to kids who are struggling. So our CIS staff in those schools, that's all they do. You know, they're not also teaching math. They're not also assigning classes. They're not also doing yard supervision and holding the walkie-talkie and, you know, all that stuff. They can focus all day, every day on helping the kids with the greatest greatest need. You know, you, you mentioned what some of the things you're doing, and I don't want to take us off onto a different road, but I have to presume that you're familiar with Vision to Learn? Yeah. Okay, so I, so, I mean, they, they will actually bring mobile vans to schools and test people, test these students, elementary through high school, to see if they need glasses and then provide them. And that's a national organization as well, and it's just unbelievable. Um, but Marcia, it was founded by Austin Butner, the same guy. Oh, that's right. The, same guy who got the art ballot passed. So, you know, what a remarkable leader he is. Oh, and to your point, that. CIS, Communities and Schools, is kind of the broker or the middleman. So we're not going to create a new agency for eyeglasses. We're going to help pull in vision to learn, or we're not going to create a new immunization program. We're going to team with public health resources. So it's really the the in-between who makes it happen and connects the kids and families to these, all the resources that are out there. And there's no way any nonprofit, you know, can do it all in, you know, food, health, vision, everything. So we're there to be that point of contact and to stay on it until they get what they need. Well, it's remarkable, and, you know, I'm looking at the clock, and I have so many other questions that I want to ask you, and if I would just stop interrupting, we could probably get to them. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move down to this question mark, and that is not a question mark. That sounded funny, didn't it? Okay, how does your, how does your school board experience inform you about the work that you're doing on the CIS board? Um, good, good question. Um, the schools that we're working with in CIS Los Angeles are LA Unified campuses, and so my understanding of the district, knowing the acronyms, knowing the history, knowing a lot of people, good people who still work in the school district, I think informs my understanding. We have a great board for communities and schools Los Angeles. Um, most of our board members come from business, corporate world, many from the entertainment industry, just fantastic, caring people. They're not necessarily of the school world, right, which has its own, as you know, its own right. its own culture, its own history, its own ways of doing, its own sensitivities. So I think having lived that brings – I'm probably more empathetic in a way for the challenges schools face a little more understanding of why they can't snap their fingers and get the new auditorium built or whatever. Um, It's a process and it's a bureaucracy, but I have some empathy about it. Um, And I have some credibility, I think, when I visit our sites and talk to our teams and the school leaders that we work with, um, that I can engage that conversation maybe at a deeper level, having worked Mm -hmm. in this world for a long time. So that's, one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved in communities and schools is it brings me back to direct service and helping kids and families in LA Unified, albeit from a different vantage point, 
when mm-hmm. not on the school board where people yell at me. <laughs> I'm in a, <laughs> a nonprofit where people tend to be kind to us and generally yes. appreciate and, you know, the events that we go to are very rewarding to, to, for me just to be there as a guest and, and see, um, see the activity. I'll give you an example. I was at an elementary school, 107th Street Elementary in Watts, a couple of weeks ago. And they had an event in the auditorium where an author was reading her book to elementary students. The book was about the first African-American woman to be an astronaut. But written for little kids and written to inspire them that they can do anything and be whoever they want. They just need to dream big and work hard and, you know, believe in yourself. So it was a lovely presentation. The kids were very attentive. And at the end, she says, well, now tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And so all these kids are raising their hand. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a lawyer. And then she gets to one little girl and she says, I want to be a YouTuber. Uh, <laughs> it made me oh smile on, on a lot of levels, but like this nine-year-old knew what a YouTuber was. I don't even know oh, what it geez. is. But that we live in a world today where they could imagine possibilities that mm-hmm. you know didn't exist in the old days. There was no internet, less YouTube. But it was just it made me laugh that this little nine-year-old girl she wants to be a YouTuber. That's hysterical. Makes you wonder what her parents do. Um, in the little bit of time we have left, I want to ask you, I, I believe you've got an enormous gift. Can you tell us about the recent gift that you just received? Sure. Actually, two gifts that have supported communities and schools both nationally and here in L.A. One from Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Um, right has become an amazing philanthropist in her own right and until recently has been making gifts sort of out of the blue, not asking people to apply, not letting people know they're even being considered, but coming, you know, doing the research you can do through Google and, you know, everything else. Right. So she made, um, I want to say, a $125 million gift nationally, about $2.5 million, which would be in L.A., that we've received for communities and schools in LA. The other gift is from Steve Ballmer, who is one oh, of the Oh, he's co- my Clippers guy. I know Steve. Well, I don't know him, but yes, he's the owner of the Clippers. I'm so sorry. I'm going there tonight. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but he's phenomenal, no, Steve Ballmer. In addition to his Clipper fan, he helped create yes. Microsoft, Bill Gates, um, <laughs> and I think probably got more money from that than from the Clippers, but great yes. owner of the Clippers building a new stadium in Inglewood, Balmer yep. is. Um, his philanthropic arm called the Balmer Group made a $135 million gift communities and schools nationally and several million of that for L.A. locally. So wow. both of those gifts within a pretty short time, um, and Balmer's challenge to CIS was to reach 1,000 more schools serving low-income kids all around mm-hmm. the country. That that's the point of his gift. Like I believe in what you're doing. I want you to get to a thousand more schools and made that investment. So it's so rewarding. That's so cool. Affirming the word. I I claim no credit whatsoever because all this was in the works before Mark got involved. So it's not about <laughs> me. But to be part of an organization that's on the move that has, you know, sparked these kinds of investments 
is, is just thrilling. And it, it's hard work for our staff, as you imagine, you know, dealing with kids and their challenges and day after day plucked away. So to have something like the Steve Ballmer gift or Mackenzie Scott gift is such a boost in the arm. You bet. A boost, I don't know, what's, what's the phrase? A boost of confidence, a shot in the arm, whatever the expression. Sure. Um, that we're just very blessed to have. Absolutely. So obviously when you have an organization the size of the two that you belong to, there are challenges and there are successes. Would you like to share just a little bit about that? But before you do, I do want to direct people to your website because you have some big events coming up and they can see that on your website. And I'll make certain that people know about your big gala and some of the other things that are happening here in our city. But not everybody will be able to attend that. But I'm just saying that, um, you know, the challenges and successes, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, for Create California, I mean, big success, Prop 28 is the dream of a lifetime because we've been making the argument, as you noted, and sharing the statistics and the research and, and moving the needle gradually, but, but incrementally. And so the Prop 28 uh, passage is a game changer and, you know, very excited about, about making that happen and, and making mm-hmm. sure that money reaches all the, all the kids. The challenges are are constant, and it's always a little bit of one step forward, one step back, because yes. of the sort of turmoil in public schools. So you could have a school district really invest in the arts, great superintendents, school board who are making stride after stride after stride, and then school board changes, superintendent leaves, a new person comes in, maybe they're not as passionate and things can backslide. So it's always a little bit of up and down, back and forth. Obviously, the goal is to keep making progress. And Prop 28, by leaps and bounds, moves us forward. So I, I couldn't be more, more thrilled about that. For communities and schools, I think the, the success are the investments we just talked about from Steve Ballmer and Mackenzie Scott um, are you know, gifts of a lifetime that are potentially transformative. I think the challenge that we face is the reality that these kids and families face that is bigger than any one of us. And schools are critical and important, and that's where we're located, and that's where we're situated, is focusing on meeting kids where they are in their, in their schools. But their lives, as you know, by housing and homelessness in L.A., by mm-hmm. drug addiction and access to drugs on the street, by youth gangs and, and violence that we see around us, by you know, inadequate access to quality, nutritious food, trouble getting health care. Like none of us have, no nonprofit has the magic wand to say mm-hmm. we're going to make all that go away. Thanks to us, you know, magic wand, everything's solved, everything's fixed, and these kids, you know, live, you know, glorious, happy lives without challenge. So that's, we were giving the other day at Commutes and Schools, we have a, a committee of the board, on this issue of advocacy, and, and in addition to helping one kid at a time, how do we raise our voice in the advocacy space, whether it's the city, county, school board, how do we address critical issues? And part of the challenge is how do you choose, because there are 50 issues affecting these families, and we cannot do 50 issues well. What's the one or two areas where we think we can uniquely make the biggest difference? 
And so getting focused is a challenge. And, and knowing that we can't do it all and sometimes living with that reality, as frustrating as it is, is a challenge. Because if you care about people, you don't want to see them live with such struggle. You want to mm-hmm. be able to make it all go away. And we don't have that magical power. We have a lot of great work going on and huge difference. Kids who are in our programs are going to graduate high school and we support them if they want to go on to college. And that's so rewarding. But if you look across the communities, it's not every kid in these communities by any means. It's not every family that we're serving. And there's Sure. So what do you see for the future of public education here in Los Angeles? I think we're at kind of a turning point, and it's a very historic turning point. Just last week was a resolution of a three-day strike slash protest in LA yep. Unified involving the lowest paid employees, the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers, the classroom aides, the janitors. And there was so much public support that that gave me hope that there may be recognition now that we're underinvesting in schools and, and public education. And that means we're underinvesting in the people. That school quality is all about great teachers and other staff. That's what makes one school great and the other not. Great principal, great teachers, caring staff. And if you're going to get people to devote their lives to this important work, you have to pay them appropriately. You have to give them the benefits they deserve. You can't do it on the cheap where people can't afford staff, can't afford their own home. Teachers can't afford to live in L.A. because it costs a million dollars to buy mm-hmm. to buy a house. So if we reinvest in the community engages, the future is really bright, and I am hopeful. But vice versa. If this was just a blip, if we don't invest, if we turn our backs, if we say it's not my problem because those kids are somebody else's kids, then the future is, is not rosy. It means less hope for these kids. And if there's less hope for the kids, there's less hope for L.A. as a city. We only make it if we make it together, and it starts with investing in, in schools. So I'm hoping that that investment, not just of money, but of care, voters right. caring, caring, community businesses caring, all of us caring, that it is our problem. We can't just you know complain about it. We need to roll up our sleeves and, and get involved. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was at a meeting last night with my Rotary Club, and the purpose of our meeting was to put together a committee of people that are going to read scholarship applications, and I think 11 high schools, one of them being Westchester, and which I'm going to be the liaison for these students that really could use some support, Mark, and you know something about Rotary. You're not new to Rotary either. Um, Interact is another fabulous organization for high school kids. Um, but, um, you know, when people get behind a cause and they want to make a difference, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, to me, what this show has been about is inspiration. You, my friend, are an inspiration. Everybody doesn't have to be Mark Slavkin doing as much as you do. But imagine our world if everybody just did a little. If you're listening in another part of this country and you're thinking, darn, we need to get behind this. You know, people can reach out to you. You're accessible. Your organizations are accessible. And I just want to thank you, Mark, 
for everything you've been doing for all of the decades that I've known you. You are truly a remarkable man, truly. Wow. Well, thank you. You're very kind and remarkable in, in your own way. And I would say to your point, Rotary is in almost every community around the country, and a great place to get involved is a local Rotary club. And communities and schools isn't every single city and town by any means, but is more and more around the country, another great opportunity. Um, and I think the, the reward of it, to your Rotary example, is helping an individual student whose name you know, you may even get to meet them, has a special resonance different than dealing with an entire school system. And as I said earlier, right. we need to do that one kid at a time that you can get that thank you note, feel like I made a difference, they went off to this school. To me, it's such a rewarding feeling. So don't ever feel like, well, all I do is X. Every bit counts. And if you're helping a single person, that matters. And you should take pride in it. And nobody should feel like they need to take on their whole city or state or something. But right. just get involved and, and help even one other person is is huge. It's meaningful. And and thank you for what you said about Rotary because Rotaries are all over. The, the Rotary is international. There, there's a group in Belize right now. There, there are people all over the world making a difference. And so I'm a strong believer in Rotary. But I'm a strong believer in public education. And that's okay. Not everybody chooses that. And I understand that. That isn't a judgment. But I know that I got a good education, uh, received maybe would be a better way of saying that. My children both went off to college, and, and they're doing well in their lives. So I just want you to know that the different times that you and I have shared this microphone together has meant a great deal to me. And um, I just want to thank you so much for once again stepping up to the plate and sharing what it is you do so other people can also be inspired. It's been wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Marcia. You're so welcome. All right, everybody. Well, we all know this is the month of madness. I don't know if your teams are in there. Mark's isn't. Mine isn't. But, you know, but you, know you mentioned Steve Ballmer. Um, I'll be rooting his team on tonight at the Staples Center. So um, I, I should reach out to him and say, hey, you know, Mark's laughing. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, but anyway, just thank you once again for joining me. This is the last Monday of March, and I'll be back again next week. So stay tuned. It's, it's an ongoing passion. And for now, I will just say bye for now, and thanks again, Mark, for joining me.